Hey friend, welcome back to Charlotte Mason's Volumes. I'm Min Huang of Life-Giving Motherhood. We had an exciting week this past week. I just wanted to share with you that life-givingmotherhood.com, which is a membership for gospel-reliant moms wanting to work on our life-giving habits together and helping our children do the same, that membership is open as of yesterday, and we're only open until midnight, March 14th. U.S. Eastern Time. So I hope that you'll go over there and take a look at that and see if this is a membership community that will be helpful to you and that you could be a part of and be a blessing to as well. Okay, with that, we're going to continue with Ourselves, Volume 4 by Charlotte Mason. This is Part 2, Chapters 7 and 8. The Lords of the Exchequer, The Desires. Mind Must Be Fed. We consider the lords of the exchequer the desires after the intellect because their office is to do for mind pretty much what the appetites do for body. It is as necessary that mind should be fed, should grow, and should produce as that these things should happen to body. And just as body would never take the trouble to feed itself if it never became hungry, so mind would not take in what it needs if it also had not certain desires to satisfy. These gather the funds, as it were, for mind, so we may amuse ourselves by calling them the lords of the exchequer. The Desire for Approbation Have you ever watched a baby with his bricks? When he has managed to set one on end, he turns around to his mother for a smile. The little creature is not happy unless his mother or nurse approve of him. When he crawls up to the window, climbs up by the chair leg, says, Mum, mum, dad, dad, he wants a smile for all these things. And if his nurse looks grave and says, Naughty, the little face will fall and tears gather. No one has taught baby to care that his friends should be pleased with him. It is born in him and is just a part of him as a human being, a little man-soul. This desire of approbation helps him later to conquer a sum, to climb a hill, to bring home a good report from school. And all the time, he is bringing grist to the mill, knowledge to the mind, because the people whose approbation is worth having care that he should learn and know, conquer our idleness and get habits of steady work, so that our minds may be duly nourished every day as are our bodies. The Demon of Vanity This lawful and useful desire of approbation has his demons. One of these is known as vanity. We cannot live and be happy without approbation, but some boys and girls, men and women, choose to have the approval of the worthless and silly rather than of the wise and good. Some boys would rather talk and show off in a way to make the stable yard laugh than work and play in a way to win the approval of their betters. People can be vain and can show off about almost anything. Their rich relations, the parties they go to, their clothes, their pocket knife, their cleverness. But when people show off like a peacock spreading his tail, it is always in order that somebody whose good opinion is not worth having may think the better of them. Nice boys and girls, nice men and women, think well of us just for doing our best. We know that and do not think of showing off before them. He is stupid who wants nobody's approval. He is vain who wants the approval of the unworthy. Fame and Infamy Another danger is that a person may allow the desire of approval so to get possession of him that he thinks of nothing else. All his actions, good or bad, come to be done to win notice from other people. He would rather you spoke ill of him than that you did not speak of him at all. It is believed that robberies, murders, assassinations take place at times for the mere sake of infamy, just as deeds of heroism may take place for the sake of fame. 
Both infamy and fame mean being talked and thought about by a large number of people, and if anyone should allow his natural desire of approbation so to possess him that he is always wondering what people will think of him and say of him, he loses that which is far more precious than the respect of others, self-respect, which one can only have when the desires, motives, powers of Mansoul are duly balanced. The Desire of Excelling Another desire which serves to feed the mind is that of excelling. If we are learning to skate, we have no peace till we skate as well as a boy we know who learned last winter. Then we want to outdo him. Then to skate as well as another better skater. Then to outdo him, and so on. And when we go to bed at night, we dream of the day when we shall skate better than anyone in the neighborhood. Nay, we think how glorious it would be to be the very best skater in the whole world. It would seem as if some animals, horses anyway, have this desire. Do you not know how another horse, in advance, puts yours on his mettle? It is as good as a prick of the spur to quicken his pace. And that is just what this desire of excelling does for us. It spurs us on to effort when we are lazy. If another boy read, we choose to read more. If he work at his lessons, we work more. And so, one way or another, the mind is sustained by the food it needs. Prizes and Places Emulation, or the desire to excel, has, like the desire of approbation, two demons. One is that people get so much taken up with the desire of being ahead of some others that they have no time to think of anything else. They do not care two pens about what they learn. It does not interest them. They only want the marks or prize, the place in class or what not. And so it happens that his mind is sometimes so starved by the boy who comes out first that it never afterwards recovers its appetite. History, literature, science cease to interest and cease to be pursued. The whole object of life in such an one is to get ahead of somebody else. In this way, emulation which was given to us, we may believe, for the nourishment of our minds and the development of our bodies, defeats its own ends and is satisfied only to excel. Excelling in things unworthy. We may go wrong if we are unduly emulous about things that are right and good in themselves. But also, emulation, like many another subordinate, may grasp at the whole rule of Mansell through things unlawful and unworthy. In the old days of hard drinking, the excellence that men desired was to excel in their power of drinking large quantities of wine at a sitting. To be a three-bottle man was a distinction. Distinctions as little worthy as this are still sought by boys and girls, men and women. We should each do well to think the matter over and see whether we are giving up our lives to the desire of excelling in an unworthy pursuit. The Desire of Wealth The desire of wealth is another desire that everybody has, more or less, and that does useful work in making us eager to acquire things useful and necessary for our lives, whether for our bodies or our minds. This same desire moves a small boy to collect pocket knives, buttons, string, and marbles, and moves one rich man to get together a precious collection of great pictures, and another to become a millionaire, though he may not care to spend his money. Demon of Selfishness As before, two demons wait upon this natural desire. One is the demon of selfishness. Once a boy or man allows himself to be so far possessed by the desire of getting and keeping, whether it be postage stamps or pictures, ornaments or money, that he thinks of nothing else, that this of getting and keeping becomes the ruling desire of his life, why, he simply cannot part with that which has become his treasure. He cannot be generous, and his mind is so preoccupied that he has no time to be kind. His heart is set upon possessions for himself, and he becomes a selfish person. When the desire of wealth fills the whole of life, it becomes avarice. 
The person who is always grasping after more wealth is avaricious, and he may come to such a pass that he cannot part with any of his wealth even for his own bodily needs. Such a man is a miser. On the other hand, he who takes pains to acquire as a part of his life and not the chief part may get for himself the means of being generous and helpful to other people. Worthless Wealth Another risk is that one may set oneself to acquire things of no real worth. In a charming French story, a noble pair are introduced to spend their lives in hasty journeys. Now they rush off to Palermo, now to Moscow, again to Tokyo. And what do you suppose for? Because they hear that in this country or that, there is a matchbox to be found of a kind they have not already got in their collection. A matchbox covered with blue paper or with brown or yellow. A matchbox three inches long or two and a quarter. They do not stop to ask what the distinction of the ugly little box may be, but it differs a little from the rest. So, at any cost of time and trouble, they hasten to possess it. The novelist is laughing at the craze people have for collections of any sort, worthy or unworthy, and this craze comes of the natural desire of possessions implanted in man's soul. But it rests with us that our possessions shall be worthy. Let us begin soon to collect a good library of books that we shall always value, of photographs of the works of the great masters, even of postage stamps, if we take the trouble to interest ourselves in the stamps. Ask ourselves, for example, why the present German stamps bear the figure of Germania. No collection which has not an interest for the mind is worth possessing. Take this rule, and when you grow up, you will not think that silver plate, for instance, is worth owning for its own sake, but for its antiquity, its associations, or for the beauty of its designs. The Desire for Power Another desire which stirs in all human breasts is the desire of power. All the children in the nursery have this desire more or less, but the one who has the most of it rules the rest. They play his games, run his errands, let him lord it over them all day long. The people who love power most get power, but if they are good-natured and kind, helpful and generous, clever and merry, they use their power to keep the rest happy, interested, and amused. Power is a good thing when it gives us many chances of serving. It is a bad thing when all we care about is to rule. Ambition, the desire for power, is not quite the same thing as emulation, the desire to excel. The emulous boy is content to be first. The ambitious boy wishes to lead the rest. I think the ambitious boy is of more use in the world than the emulous because if he wants to lead others, he must make himself worthy to take the lead. He must be best, whether he be captain of the school or of the cricket eleven. But let him remember that pride comes before a fall. If he let himself be lifted up because he leads, let him beware. Others care to follow the lead of the dutiful and devoted, but not that of the proud and self-satisfied. The desire for power, as each of the other desires, may ruin a life that it is allowed to master. Once man or boy thinks of nothing but taking the lead, he will cease to care whether it be for worthy or unworthy objects. He will, as soon, head his fellows in riot and disorder as in noble effort in a good cause. Many lives have suffered shipwreck upon the rock of ambition. Managing People There is also a special danger attending the love of power, a danger to others rather than to ourselves. If we are bent upon taking the lead, we do not allow others fair play or a fair chance. We cheat our fellows out of a part of their lives, out of that fair share of power which belongs to them. We grow strong at their expense, and they wax feeble in proportion as we wax great. Few characters are more ignoble than those who are always trying to manage others, always maneuvering to get power into their own hands. 
the best way of watching against this evil is to wait always until we have greatness thrust upon us. Let us not take the lead, but wait until it is given to us, and then let us lead for the advancement and help of others rather than for our own. Chapter 8 The Lords of the Exchequer, The Desires The Desire of Society Another desire common to all people is the desire to be together. We all want company, neighbors, friends, acquaintances. Little children love to play with other little children in the street. You see half a dozen little creatures of two years old or so toddling about together, talking their baby talk and taking much pleasure in one another. The great joy of going to school is to be with other boys and girls of about the same age and standing. Young men have their clubs, men and women have parties. Men of little or no education will hang about together if they seldom speak, and people of certain savage nations will sit in silent circles by the hour. The same reason is at work in them all. All have the desire of society. We want to see each other's faces, to hear each other's voices, to give pleasure to and receive pleasure from each other. We learn from society. In this way we learn, for most people have things to say that it is good to hear, and we should have something to produce from our own stories that will interest others. Something we have seen or heard, read or thought. When our late beloved queen was a young girl, many interesting people were introduced to her that she might talk with them. Great travelers, men of science, inventors, soldiers, sailors. She had already read and thought about the subject each was interested in, so she was able to converse with them with pleasure and profit both to herself and to them. If you know something of botany, a botanist will care to talk to you about a subject. Something of history, a historian will do the same. If you know nothing of a subject, you may be in company with the greatest poet or adventurer or painter and be able to talk only about the weather. This is well understood among royal and other great people who, it is said, get most of their knowledge at first hand. They learn about recent discoveries in astronomy from the astronomer who is engaged upon them, about evolution from such a one as Darwin, and so on. We are sometimes inclined to envy the great their opportunities for first-hand information, but let us remember that to profit by the talk of even the most able persons implies a twofold preparation, which princes and their like acquire at a cost of diligent labor that would surprise most young people. They bring two things as their share of the talk, cultivated and intelligent minds, and a pretty thorough knowledge of a great range of subjects. With the same equipment, we too should make the most of our opportunities of talk, and it seems to me that people always get what they are really ready for. I'm not sure that this is a rule of God's providence, but so far as I can find out, it holds good. Anyway, it is worthwhile to be ready for the best in conversation as in other things, and then this natural desire will do its devoir in collecting sustenance for the mind. But it is not only from the best and ablest we may learn. I have seen ill-bred people in a room and even at a table who had nothing to say because they did not think their neighbor worth talking to, whereas if they could only get speech with so-and-so whom they watched from a distance, how their words would flow. This is not only unmannerly and unkind, but is foolish and is a source of loss to themselves. Perhaps there is no one who has not some bit of knowledge or experience who has not had some thought all his own. A good story is told of Sir Walter Scott, how he was traveling from London to Edinburgh by the stagecoach and sharing the box seat with him was a man who would not talk. He tried the weather, crops, politics, books, every subject he could think of, and we may be sure they were many. At last, in despair, he turned around with, Well, what can you talk about, sir? Bent leather, said the man, and added Sir Walter, We had one of the most interesting conversations I remember. Everybody has his bent leather to talk about if we have the gift to get at it.
Dangers Attending the Love of Society Two dangers attend the love of society. One belongs especially, as I said before, to the vain person who will, at all costs, be flattered, and therefore chooses his friends among those who are inferior to himself, and who will make believe to look up to him and make much of him. The other danger attending the love of society is that which belongs to each of our natural desires. It is that this craving should take possession of our whole lives and get the mastery over man's soul. There is no harm in it, says the woman at the cottage door, gossiping with her neighbor. So says the girl who chances on her friends in the morning, plays tennis in the afternoon, and goes out in the evening, is, in fact, all day chattering here and there with nothing to show for it. There are those who are so busy running hither and thither, seeing and being seen, talking and being talked to, that they are the various beggars as regards their own thoughts and resources. This is a sort of shipwreck of life which people do not lament over as they do when a man drinks or falls into some other flagrant vice, but the shipwreck is perhaps just as complete, though not so unpleasant to the person's friends. Society, a banquet at which all provide. Society, if it be only a chat between two or three acquaintances, is a banquet to which each of the company must bring something. Young people often find this trying because they feel they have nothing to say unless to one or two people with whom they are intimate. Let them take comfort. Intelligent listening is a very good viand for this table, and what is more, a viand to everybody's taste. There are more people who can talk than who can listen. I dare say you have been amused in watching groups of talkers to notice that everyone is talking at once and nobody listening. To listen with all one's mind is an act of delicate courtesy, which draws their best out of even dull people. People of little culture can talk only to their own set or to their own particular chums. Horsey men have nothing to say except to horsey men, doggy boys except to doggy boys, schoolboys to schoolboys, schoolgirls to schoolgirls, soldiers to soldiers, and sailors to sailors. This is natural enough, for, says the proverb, birds of a feather flock together. But it is not wise, for it is choosing to live in our own particular paddock instead of taking our share in the interests of the great world. The Desire of Knowledge I have left till last the desire which truly is to the mind as hunger is to the body, that is, the desire of knowledge. Everybody wants to know, but some people wish to know things worthy and others things unworthy. The desire of unworthy knowledge is commonly called curiosity. Where did you buy it? How much did it cost? What did she say? Who was there? Why are they not on good terms? And so on are the sort of questions that curiosity asks. It seems harmless enough to satisfy oneself with scraps of news about this notable person and the other, a murderer or a millionaire, a statesman or a soldier, a great lady or a dancing girl. Curiosity is a gate for news about any or all of them. Curiosity is eager, too, to know and to tell the latest news about wireless telegraphy, motor cars, and whatnot. The real and not spurious desire for knowledge would lead a person from the marvels of wireless telegraphy to some serious study of electricity. But curiosity is satisfied to know something about a matter and not really to know it. Curiosity and the Desire of Knowledge Just as sweets and tarts satisfy hunger while they do very little to sustain life, so curiosity satisfies the mind with the tidbits it gathers, and the person who allows himself to be curious has no desire for real knowledge. This is a pitiable misfortune, because every human being has a natural desire to explore those realms open to intellect of which I have already spoken. Upon the knowledge of these great matters, history, literature, nature, science, art, 
The mind feeds and grows. It assimilates such knowledge as the body assimilates food, and the person becomes what is called magnanimous. That is, a person of great mind, wide interests, incapable of occupying himself much about petty personal matters. What a pity to lose sight of such a possibility for the sake of miserable scraps of information about persons and things that have little connection with one another and little connection with ourselves. Emulation and the Love of Knowledge The love of knowledge, the noblest of our desires, is in danger of being pushed out and deprived of its due share in the ordering of Mansoul if any one of the other desires I have named gets the upper hand. This is especially the case when emulation takes the place of the love of knowledge. People employ themselves about knowledge and about mathematics, poetry, history, in a feverish, eager way, not at all for the love of these things, but for the sake of prize or place, some reward bestowed on emulation. But knowledge has her own prizes, and these she reserves for her lovers. It is only insofar as knowledge is dear to us and delights us for herself that she yields us lifelong joy and contentment. He who delights in her, not for the sake of showing off and not for the sake of excelling others, but just because she is so worthy to be loved, cannot be unhappy. He says, My mind to me a kingdom is. And, however unsatisfactory things are in his outer life, he retires into that kingdom and is entertained and delighted by the curious, beautiful, and wonderful things he has stored within. Marks and Knowledge Many boys and girls take pleasure in going to school, not for the sake of what they learn there, but for the sake of the marks which give them places above certain of their classmates. They should understand that marks and places and the power to pass examinations is all they get. As Mr. Ruskin has said, they cram to pass and not to know. They do pass and they don't know. Knowledge as an abiding joy comes only to those who love her for her own sake and not to those who use her to get on in school or in life. All persons have powers of mind. There is much more to be said about the house of mind, but perhaps this is enough to go on with for the present. Probably you are aware, in hearing of intellect, imagination, the beauty sense, the desires, and the rest, of a feeling of wondering interest and surprise to recognize that all these things are a part of you, your very self. Still, more interesting and surprising it is to know that these amazing powers and possibilities belong, more or less, to every little urchin we meet in the street. I say more or less because the greater the powers and qualities of mind possessed by our parents, grandparents, and far-removed ancestors, the greater will our own probably, but by no means certainly be. But excepting in the sad case of idiots, there never was a child born into the world of civilized or of savage parents who did not come gifted with all these great possibilities in some degree. What a reason have we here for doing whatever in us lies towards giving every person in the world the chance of being all that he came into the world provided and intended to be. The Ordering of Our Thoughts We need not carry this little bit of knowledge about ourselves like a pack on our back. Once one knows a thing, it comes to mind when it is wanted, and it is not a burden to think of all the time. You are not always thinking, if I put my finger in the fire it will be burnt, but you know that that is the case, and so do not do a foolish thing. In the same way, if you know the effect of caring for marks only, you endeavor to throw your mind and interest into your work for its own sake. So, far from being a burden, this knowledge will at once make work become delight. 
a king's palace is no more trouble to him than a laborer's cottage to him, though the king knows of all the treasures his palace contains, and how they are to be safeguarded, used, and enjoyed. But the needful arrangements are made, and all goes on without further thought on his part. So with us in this matter of ordering our thoughts, for that is all it comes to, to know that we must order our thoughts, that we can do so, and how and when to interfere with the career of these same thoughts, is not the whole, but, I believe, it is half the battle. If you've enjoyed this episode, I invite you to give a five-star rating so more people can find Charlotte Mason's volumes. Also, if you are interested in studying Charlotte Mason's volumes, as well as growing in your own spiritual disciplines and life-giving habits, to form a gospel-centered home culture, I invite you to check us out at life-givingmotherhood.com. All moms all over the world are invited. Thank you. I'll see you next time.